0: Welcome to the Schwartz on Sports Podcast, hosted by Noah Schwartz. Hey everyone, welcome back to Schwartz on Sports, episode number 17 here on the Belly Up Podcast Network. A lot of sports to get into today. I'm your host, Noah Schwartz. We'll talk about the NFL. We'll talk about the NBA. uh, We'll talk about the big Nolan Arenado trade. So we're not going to talk about the Super Bowl today. We'll get to that later this week, probably Friday when I do my next episode. But for today, uh, we'll talk another about another topic, football-related, and then we'll uh, keep going with the NBA and baseball. So let's begin um, with the big trade from last night that broke. Matthew Stafford is getting traded for Jared Goff. Shocking. Uh, I was stunned when I saw it. I'm still stunned now, 12 hours or so later. And um, it was wild. I mean, I've never seen a trade quite like that one in my lifetime watching football. And I saw uh, uh, something that Adam Schefter put out this morning. He said that it was the first time in league history that two number one overall picks, uh, former number one overall picks, were traded for each other. So the first time that ever happened. Just shows you the historical significance, gives you some context there about just how crazy this trade is. Uh, We've never really seen anything quite like this. And, you know, I think in the NFL, we're kind of moving towards where the NBA is, where the players control Kind of their destiny a lot more than they have in the past, and players can get traded, and there's going to be a lot more movement among these rosters than we than what we've seen in the past. And this is just the latest, latest example of it. Uh, Matthew Stafford, number one pick 12 or 13 years ago, got five years ago, both quarterbacks, both stars, and now they're getting dealt for one another. It's something that you would have never thought you'd see, but you know, here we are with today's NFL. It's definitely different than what we've seen in the past. So the way I want to Compare this trade or or make a comparison to it is in terms of relationships and and friends that you may have So have you ever seen or have you ever had a friend? Who sort of seems to go by the beat of his own drum? Doesn't really have a set group of friends that he likes to hang out with but yet is the really cool guy Super nice super talented uh, and when you get to know him. He's a little shy But at the same time you could just tell he's gifted. He's a good athlete. uh, He's very nice Everyone that he talks to, he gets along with, but he doesn't have a set group of friends. Super talented guy though. And then on the other hand, there may be people out there that you've met where maybe they're not as talented. Maybe they don't have the same gifts. Maybe they're not as nice. Maybe you know they don't, they don't get along with you just as well, but they seem to have a set of friends that they can always rely on, always count on. And those other people just seem to be a cut above that person. And I think that's a good way to put this Stafford golf trade. Matthew Stafford is the friend that you've had where he's super talented, but he just doesn't seem to have the people that he can rely on, on a consistent basis. On the other hand, Goff's the guy that maybe is a cut below his friends, but yet his friends are extremely talented and he just isn't, really. He just doesn't seem to be that super special person that you'd think would fit into that group, but at the same time, he gets to hang out with those people. That's that's the careers of these two guys. And if you think about it, it makes a lot of sense because when Matthew Stafford was drafted into the league 13, 12, 12, 13 years ago, he went to as bad of an organization as you can possibly go to in football. The Detroit Lions are a perennial disaster. They can't hire coaches right. When they do hire coaches right, they fire them for no reason, a la Jim Caldwell. Uh, they never get the rosters correct. They have a rotating cast of general managers over the course of the, over the course of course many years. Uh, and then when they do have star players and they do have the offensive talent that you need to compete in this league, those guys end up either getting hurt a lot or the front office just really bothers them and makes them retire early like Calvin Johnson. So it has been a really rough go for Stafford uh, with the Detroit Lions and he's put up amazing numbers every single year. You can see why he was the number one pick. You can see why he is such a commodity around the league. He puts up 4,000 yards every year. He gets 30 touchdowns many, many years. I mean, he, he puts up amazing numbers. But the, the cast around him, uh, the front office around him, the coaching staff around him, it's never up to standard. And then you have a guy like Goff, and from the moment he got to the league, outside of his rookie year, I won't count his rookie year, but after that, each of the last four years, he's had a great coach in Sean McVay. They've had great offensive personnel on the offensive line, receiver talent. They've got a lot of that. They've always had great running backs, Cam Akers, prior to that, Todd Gurley. And then the defense has always been near the top or at the top of the league. You can see with uh, Aaron Donald, best defensive player of his generation. They traded for Jalen Ramsey a couple years ago. They have talent everywhere. And for whatever reason, Goff just never was able to elevate himself into the category of those other players. And he was really the one reason that that team was being held back. Now, he is a good quarterback, Jared Goff. He definitely is good. He just is the one thing that they were lacking to be a Super Bowl team. And if you look at the last four years of Goff's career under McVeigh, I'll go through each year one by one, but for whatever reason, Goff was the, the thing that held them back a little bit. And so let's go back to his second year, McVeigh's first season. It's Goff's second year in the league, and they go 12-4, and four, they make the playoffs, they lose a playoff game. Well, why is that? Well, Goff wasn't really good enough in that playoff game. Go to the next year. They go to the Super Bowl. All the way to the Super Bowl They're the best team in the NFC They beat the Saints on the road In the NFC title game They go to the Super Bowl And Goff can only muster a field goal The entire game Against Bill Belichick They lose by In a low scoring close game Like 13-3 10-3 Whatever it was Year 3 This was last year They miss the playoffs They go 9-7 They've got a great team And Goff just doesn't play up to standard They miss the playoffs Then His fifth year Which was just this past season Goff's not consistent. He turns the ball over. You can tell McVay's getting really frustrated with his quarterback. They've got the number one defense in the league. They've got a great rushing attack. The offensive line is among the best in the NFL. And they win one playoff game against Seattle. And then they bow out against Green Bay in the divisional round. And that's that. So at every single stage, Goff has been the one thing that's held them back. And he's a good quarterback. He's had plenty of moments where he's played really, really well. He's had plenty of highs. But he's also had quite a number of lows, and those lows have outweighed the highs. And you can see how McVeigh and the front office there with Les Need as the GM, those guys have started to get really frustrated. And this past season you could you could really tell. McVeigh kind of grew up with Goff, and they had always supported each other and it had always been a good relationship. And then when McVeigh earlier this year called out Goff after a loss, saying that he'd been that he'd been turning the ball over, making too many bad decisions. You were like, whoa, you never thought McVay would say something about his franchise guy. Because McVay's whole career was really predicated on how he could develop Jared Goff. And I think he took him to his peak. He got him as far as he possibly could. But at some point, Goff's talent just sort of stalled. And there was nowhere for him to go. He was just sort of stagnant. And that was it. And as soon as he hit that level, and as soon as he started to stagnate, and other teams started to figure him out, they had to move off him because they feel like they have a Super Bowl team. They feel like with that roster, defensively and offensively, they have every single piece that they need, plus a championship-level head coach, to get back to the Super Bowl and this time win it. And Goff wasn't the quarterback that they could rely on to get them there. So they moved off of him. Now they bring in Stafford. Again, a guy who puts up fantastic numbers every single year, but he has never been able to be the the face of a winning organization, really. I mean, he's only made the playoffs three times in his entire career, He's never won a playoff game. He's never won the NFC North despite that being an inconsistent division outside of the Packers. And so Stafford's really never had that chance. Now he goes to the Rams and he has a chance to be in the league's premier market in a new stadium with a great coach and a great roster. This is a chance for Stafford later in his career. He's like 32 to actually go into the playoffs, win a playoff game or two, have a chance to win a Super Bowl. It's a great opportunity. Now, it did cost a lot for the Rams to go get Matt Stafford, and this was where the trade really shocked me. They had to give up not only Goff, but two first-round picks and a third-round pick to get Stafford. Now, I didn't think there's that much of a gap between Stafford and Goff, at least a gap that's worthy of the two first-rounders and the third-rounder, but it just shows you where the Rams are in terms of how they want to, how they view the future of their team because they've been trading first-round picks galore the last few years. They traded two for Jalen Ramsey, They trade another two first-round picks now for Stafford. They haven't made a first-round pick in the draft since Jared Goff back five years ago in 2016, and they're not going to be making one anytime soon now that they spent another two on Stafford. So it just shows you where they are. They, They care more about winning now. They'll sacrifice the future for later on. They'll deal with it when it happens. But for now, they want to win as many games as they can, make it back to the Super Bowl, and win it. And they feel that Stafford gives them a far better chance than Goff does, and that Stafford is the ideal quarterback to lead them in a new direction and and be the guy who can actually handle McVay's offense to its peak. So so we'll see how it goes. Again, it was a lot of picks, uh, a lot of draft capital for the Rams to get Matt Stafford there, but it was something they felt was worth it, and we heard the rumors circling a lot recently about them wanting to move off Goff. They gave him the big contract. They didn't feel it was worth it to keep him, and despite the salary cap ramifications, there's a lot of dead money involved in this trade. They were able to make it work, and we'll see how it goes. Um, The other big part of this that I don't think people have been talking about enough is how this trade ultimately will affect the Deshaun Watson trade because if it took two first-rounders and a good quarterback in Jared Goff, not a great quarterback, but a good quarterback in Jared Goff, to get Matt Stafford plus a third-rounder, how many first-rounders is it going to take for a team to acquire Deshaun Watson? It's an interesting question because we know Deshaun Watson is getting traded, despite what David Cully and... Nick Casario and all the people in Houston think those people are delusional. Deshaun Watson wants out. He has made that very clear. He's taken all the Texan stuff off his profiles and social media, and he wants out. He wants to go to a different team. How many teams out there actually have the draft capital that they're willing to give up to get Deshaun Watson? Is it going to take three first-round picks? Is it going to take four first-round picks? Is it going to take, for a team like the Jets or Dolphins, maybe the two front runners? to trade their young quarterbacks into a, or, or Sam Darnold in addition to a bunch of first-round first round picks. It's a really interesting thought here because we don't know how much it's going to take now, but we do see that Goff and Stafford have sort of set the market for what trading for a quarterback may look like. So again, I don't know the exact number, but Houston is going to be able to get a lot in return uh, for Deshaun Watson if they play their cards right and if they ultimately negotiate and make it work with the right team. Again, we'll see. But I think that's a really interesting part of this. So again, Stafford for Goff took a lot of draft capital uh, for the Rams to bring him in. But they felt it was worth it. And we'll see how it affects the, the uh, quarterback controversies that are going on across the league. There's a lot of, a lot of movement. You're going to see a lot of movement in terms of quarterbacks, both with the draft and free agency trades. We'll see how it all works out. But we're going to see a lot of movement among these teams. And uh, I think Stafford and Goff just sort of set the market for what it may take to acquire a new quarterback. All right, so let's talk about baseball. Nolan Arenado got traded the other day. That was kind of shocking too. As shocking as Stafford and Goff was, this was almost as shocking to me. Uh, Not just for the fact that Nolan Arenado finally did get traded, we've been hearing about this for a long time, but the fact that it was St. Louis. And we had heard about St. Louis being a fit for maybe a day or two prior to the trade actually happening, but it didn't seem like the right team for him was the Cardinals on the surface of it. The Cardinals are a small market, they're not paying big money for a lot of guys, And typically, they sort of stay out of the free agent trade market. But they did make the move for Paul Goldschmidt a couple years ago, and I guess this is the direction they want to go in now, where they want to get stars and uh, be a a premier destination for the top guys. So they traded for Nolan Arenado, they gave a a bunch of prospects, and they got $50 million, along with Arenado, so that they can use that money to pay him and uh, then you know they'll handle the rest of the contract. Rockies will handle 50 million, they'll handle the rest of the 199 million on the, on the deal. So uh, we'll see exactly what the terms of uh, the contract are as this goes further because we've heard that Arenado may ask for another opt-out in a couple of years or you know, they may change it a little bit. But what it looks like is the Cardinals are gonna be on the books for about 140-ish million of this, 100, maybe 150 million of this new deal and the Rockies will handle about 50 million of it. So it's complicated, there's a lot of moving parts here, nothing is finalized, but Nolan Arenado will be the new St. Louis third baseman, and they have a superstar. Now how does he fit? He fits great. This is a team that, again, they don't have a lot of star players. This is is a franchise that loves to develop homegrown talent. It loves to create guys from its minor league system and turn them into great big leaguers. So again, it's not really the cardinal way, but in this case, it works. They had a hole at third base. Tommy Edmonds has been there for the last couple of years. He's not great. He places too because he's a utility player. And they can throw Arenado in. He's the best defensive third baseman of his era. Eight straight goal gloves. He'll be great defensively. And he'll have a chance to be the premier hitter in the middle of that order. 35-40 home runs a season, 120 RBIs, hit close to 300. He is a fantastic two-way player one of the five best players in the game today, and he'll have a chance to, to really make an impact with the Cardinals. And I think it's cool that we've seen so many of these other big market teams go for it and make moves. The Mets, the Yankees last year getting Garrett Colt. The Padres go getting uh, going to get so many guys that they have, Blake Snell, Hugh Darvish. It'll be interesting to see how, uh, how Maranata can change the culture with the Cardinals and make them one of the elite teams in the National League. The National League is going to be a gauntlet. You're going to have the Mets. You're going to have Philly. You're going to have Washington. You're going to have Atlanta. You're going to have the Dodgers. You're going to have the Padres. The Cubs are always competitive. But the Cardinals are trying to throw themselves right into that mix. And for as much as the AL looks like it's going to be kind of a joke, uh, last year's top team in the race has dealt off a bunch of pieces, and you know the Yankees are still competitive, but not to the same extent as maybe they once were, the the NL is going to be the, the tougher conference, or the tougher league, I should say. It is going to be really, really difficult for a team to emerge because there is so much depth among so many of the different teams here that have actually tried to spend. And I did a, a segment on this in an earlier episode. I don't know exactly which episode, but it had to have been about a month ago. And I talked about how unfortunate it is that so many of today's big league teams have basically just stopped trying. And the Cardinals are one of the teams that hasn't done that But on the other hand, the Rockies have shown that they really didn't care to hold up their end of the bargain with Nolan Arenado. They signed Nolan to a $250 million or so deal back a couple years ago, 2019. And when they made that promise to him, they said, we are going to build around you. We are going to spend. You are not going to be the only face of the franchise here. We're going to have you. We're going to have Trevor Story. We're going to upgrade our pitching. We're going to make other moves to, to... Elevate us into the top tier in the National League And they haven't done it They didn't do anything last offseason They had struggled in 2019 They didn't do anything last offseason They struggled again in 2020 And very quickly you could tell That Nolan Arenado was getting really frustrated With the GM Jeff British uh, And everybody else that, that's there with Colorado And you could tell this was sort of Coming to a head very quickly And finally I guess they really negotiated with the Cardinals last week And they made this happen But it just goes to show you how many teams out there are doing this to star players like Arenado. You pay a guy, you promise him, and and ultimately you wanna make him the face of your franchise and then you just don't do anything to support him. Baseball's not like basketball where you can have one or two stars and that's enough to be a championship level team. You need to have a lot of depth, you need to have pitching, you need to have an offense, you need to have good good defenders. And the Rockies just didn't do that. They didn't support Arenado to the extent that he needed to be supported and he very quickly got frustrated, and he's on his way out. I wouldn't be surprised if Trevor Story, the great shortstop they have there, is also out next year when he becomes a free agent. So again, it's just, it's a tough situation when the pandemic hits and there's no fans and just teams don't have the revenue to spend the way they used to. But at the same time, when you make a promise to a player, a guy who's been your franchise icon for eight or nine years, you wanna hold up that end of your bargain. You wanna, you wanna do it for him and do it for your fans. And they haven't, the Rockies haven't, and the Cardinals are gonna try and, and ultimately uh, make a relationship with Arenado. That's not just for this season, because he does have an opt-out at the end of the year, but they wanna make this a long-term thing. They wanna keep him there, not only for this year, but for five, six, seven, eight years into the future. He's already 30, right around 30, but he could be a great player with his offensive and defensive skills for the next decade, and the Cardinals hope that this is a long-term marriage, uh, and they'll have him as a, as a cornerstone piece of their team for a while. So again, nationally, gonna be really tough, A lot of depth there, but with a guy like Nolan Arenano, a top five player in baseball, maybe the best third baseman in the entire sport, uh, it's it's a way for the Cardinals to throw themselves right into that top mix and we'll see how it all goes, but I love this trade for the Cardinals. They needed a guy like this and it's not the worst thing for them to spend the extra money. They can definitely afford it and handle it and they will have a great player uh, as one of the centerpieces of their team. We'll be right back to talk about the NBA and then we'll do a winner of the week. So. Take a quick commercial break, and then we will be right back here on Schwartz on Sports. Belly Up Sports has recently partnered with Manscaped because proper grooming requires precision-engineered tools. Not only do men's sensitive areas require it, but hygiene demands it. Get all the right tools for the job with Manscaped. Head over right now to bellyupsports.com, and at the top of the page, click the Manscaped image and shop. Make sure you use the promo code BELLYUPFANTASY to save 20% off your order. That's the promo code BELLYUPFANTASY to save 20% off your order. Welcome back to SOS, episode number 17 here on the BellyUp Up Podcast Network. We just talked some football with the Stafford and Goff trade and then some baseball with the Nolan Arenado trade. But it's time to talk some basketball as we have hit just about the quarter mark of this quick 72-game regular season. Much different than I think most people have come to get used to with the NBA. Uh, a lot of rest days, less back-to-backs than there's ever been, but this year is a lot different. Uh, a lot of one game, one day in between games, a lot more back-to-backs. It's been quick and we're already at the quarter point. Everybody's played approximately 20 games, maybe a little bit more, a little bit less depending on off days and if you had issues with COVID because a lot of teams have had games canceled, but we're approximately at the quarter mark. So. I think a lot of people have started to talk about their awards picks already because we love to talk about the NBA awards from the very beginning of the season all the way to the end of it. So I figured at the quarter mark, let me give you guys my thoughts on the awards so far. So let's start with MVP. Now I'll give you my top contender and then I'll give you maybe one or two other names that I think would fit into the category for a finalist. So for MVP, I'm going to go with Joel Embiid. The Sixers are the number one seed in the East And Joel Embiid has had his best season in the NBA to this point. He has dominated. And I've always thought that he has the most talent of any center in the league, but he's never been able to be healthy enough and be consistent enough to really utilize that talent. This year under Doc Rivers, they've had a, a lot of change with their roster. They've added more shooting, and it's allowed him to have the floor be a little more open, and he is just destroyed people on the block, in the mid-post, and he's shooting threes better than he ever has. He's averaging 27 or so points a game, double-digit rebounds every single night, he can pass, he's an amazing defensive player, he's a great rim protector, and the Sixers are playing great. They're 14 and six, they're a game and a half or so, ahead of everybody else, a game or two ahead, and he's playing at an elite level. So I think he's the MVP. I think a lot of people so far uh, have him as the MVP, not just because he's played so well, but because the MVP in the NBA is a lot about narratives, and his narrative is great. His story has been fantastic. The guy who had a really uh, troubling season last year—he was hurt a lot. They were swept in the playoffs, and he has come back after the bubble and looked like a totally different guy. So I'll think I, I, to me, I think NBA's the, the MVP so far. The only other people that I would really consider to this point for the award is number one Nikola Jokic for what he has done, averaging a triple double for the Nuggets. They haven't played well enough for me to vote for him, but he's right there in the mix, and if they continue to win games and play better than they did early in the season, he might win it. And then obviously LeBron James. 25 points a game, leading scorer on the Lakers. They're one of the best teams in the league, and he is doing things that we have never seen a guy do in his 18th season. He's still the best player in the world. He's dominating every night, and uh, LeBron is right in the mix too. So Embiid number one, and then Jokic and LeBron James are the two other names that i consider, but, and beats the MVP. Alright, Rookie of the Year. I think it's Tyrese Halliburton. Now, it's unfortunate that I haven't gotten to see as much of Tyrese Halliburton as I would have liked to, just because he plays for a bad team, the Kings stink, and they're not really on national TV a lot. They play out in California. I don't get to see those teams as often when they're not on TNT or, or ABC or ESPN. So I don't see a lot of Halliburton, but I've seen a lot of him on YouTube and on the internet, and this guy looks like the real deal and the fact that he felt outside of the top 10 in the draft is it's shocking uh what he is able to do not just as a shooter and an offensive creator but the way he looks so mature on an NBA floor it's amazing this guy doesn't turn the ball over he doesn't make mistakes he makes a ton of shots he gets shots for other people and he just looks so smooth on the floor It looks like nothing intimidates him, nothing bothers him. He plays so cool, calm, and collected. And I think everyone that's watched him has been just really impressed with everything that he's been able to do on both ends of the floor. He's big, he's long, he's athletic for a point guard. He's done everything so far. And I think the Kings were really unwilling to trade Buddy Heald uh, this past summer and, and definitely last season when he was a little upset. I think they're going to be much more willing now to trade him at this year's deadline or maybe in the offseason because they think they have a star in the backcourt now to go alongside De'Aaron Fox. And we already knew De'Aaron was amazing. He is one of the best players in the league now. They might have another guy who can match him. And if you have Halliburton and Fox, two excellent guards in your backcourt, that's a good start to have a really good team. And then when you have guys like Marvin Bagley and some of the other young players that they do have that continue to build this team up... But it's, it's, not a, it's not a really great roster right now in Sacramento, but they're building it, and they're on their way, and Halliburton is going to be a huge part of their future success. So he is the rookie of the year. Other guys I'd consider, LaMelo Ball, he's been inefficient. He's been at times ineffective, but when he's on, my God, this looks special. His passing ability is clear. It's obvious he is a phenomenal passer. When he makes shots, he's definitely uh, an effective player out there. Defensively, he's still still struggling, but... He'll get better, and he's going to play definitely a lot more down the rest of this season for the Hornets. I've been impressed with LaMelo. And then James Wiseman. I thought James Wiseman was raw. I thought he would have a bad rookie year. He, I didn't think he was ready for the league. He is. He can make threes at seven feet. He is quite an athlete. I mean, his physical body is just its shocking how long and athletic he is for a guy that huge. Um, and for the Warriors, he's played a small role, but yet every single night you watch him and you're like, how did he do that? How did, he, how did he roll to the rim like that and dunk? How did he make that shot uh, as a guy that, that who's that big? So I've been really impressed with Wiseman. I think he's going to be really good one day. I wasn't as high as him on the draft. I was wrong. He's going to be excellent in the NBA for a long time. Most improved player. Now, this one is a weird award for me to vote for because typically I like to vote for people, or I like to pick guys for this award who were really just at the bottom of the league and nobody knew who they were and then all of a sudden they become stars or close to it and that's why I usually prefer to vote for guys like Pascal Siakam uh, or or someone like Devontae Graham last year. Those are the guys that to me fit the profile of a most improved player better but this year there's nobody really like that so I have to pick Jalen Brown and again I don't normally do this because Jalen averaged 20 points a game last year but when you average 20 a game and then the next year you're at 27 a game and you're on one of the best teams in the league as the number two player and you look like an all-star lock, maybe an all-star starter, I have to vote for you for this award. So in five years, Jalen has just improved so much. When he first got into the league, he was just an athlete. He was a exciting, young, tantalizing wing, and now he's polished. He can make shots. He creates shots for other people. He's a great defender. He has improved significantly under Brad Stevens with the Celtics. And I think he's the most improved player. It's hard for me to say that because, again, I don't really vote for guys like Jalen. That's why I don't really—I didn't think Luka Doncic was worthy of the award last year or Jason Tatum last year. I didn't think he was worthy. But in this case, Jalen has made the best case so far. Other names I'd consider would be Jeremy Grant and Christian Wood. There's not an obvious candidate, as I said, but Jalen, to me, is the most improved player. And I did vote for him. I can say I did vote— for my all-star starters a few days ago, and I did put Jalen Brown as one of the two starting, uh, starting backcourt members in the East. So Jalen has been amazing, and I, do, I have nothing but admiration for what he's been able to do this year. Defensive player of the year. Tough one. Another tough one. I think it's Anthony Davis. You could, you could say Rudy Gobert. You could say Kawhi. Most people think it's Kawhi or uh, Giannis or Rudy Gobert is the best defender in the league. I think it's AD. What he does guarding all five positions every night, I mean, he, he makes the Laker defense what it is. They would not be able to have such an aggressive scheme, forcing turnovers and, uh, you know, the lack of switching that they do. They really like to stick, stay connected to ball handlers. That's not possible if they don't have a guy like Anthony Davis who makes it easier on everybody else. So I think he should have won it last year. I think he deserves to win it again this season. His jumper and his scoring have not been where it's, where, it, uh, where we typically would see it. He was 27 points a game last year, much lower this season. He's been struggling. But defensively, he brings effort every single night, and he is the reason why the Lakers are in the top three in defense so far early in the season. So AD is my Defensive Player of the Year. There are other candidates worthy. Sixth Man of the Year. This one's an easy one. It has to be Jordan Clarkson. Jordan Clarkson has been outstanding for the Utah Jazz this year. Just Outstanding. And they're the best team in the league. I'm going to talk more about them later. But Clarkson's the guy off the bench who makes all click. Because he comes in and he's a spark plug. He makes shots. He creates shots for other people. And he's playing really hard defensively. I've been really impressed with Jordan Clarkson. This guy has improved a ton over the last few years. He was a Laker. He was just in a, a nice spark plug scorer. Then he was in Cleveland and he couldn't make a shot with LeBron. Now he's in Utah and it all has clicked. And he's having the best year of his career so far. He's definitely the sixth man of the year, a highest scoring bench player in the league early in the season at just around 17 points a game. Jordan Clarkson is your sixth man of the year and there's nobody even in consideration to win the award but him. Finally, coach of the year, another hard one. This is the hardest award for me every year to vote for, to, to, to think about. There are so many candidates every year, coaches that I really like the job they do, but one person to me has stood out above the pack so far early in the season. And it's from a team that nobody expected would be where they are. It's J.B. Bickerstaff of the Cleveland Cavaliers. They're 9-10. This was a team the last two years since LeBron left them. They've been among the worst teams in the entire NBA. And now they're 9-10, and 10, and they're 7th in the East with a chance to, to even raise a little bit in the standings because the Hawks and Celtics are only a game ahead of them. It has been really impressive what J.B. Bickerstaff has been able to do. And this was a guy who took over as the interim coach midway through last season after John Beeline was let go. And we figured maybe he'd be there the rest of the year. I didn't think he was getting the job permanently. He got the job, and he has just really instilled um, some defensive principles with these guys. This is a young roster. They don't have a lot of experience, and they're playing hard every night. And we've seen some of their younger players improve significantly early in the season. Colin Sexton is playing at an elite level, averaging just around 25 points a game. Darius Garland has improved. Larry Nance Jr. is leading the league in steals, playing the best basketball of his career. Andre Drummond's playing some of the best basketball of his career. Uh, They just acquired Jared Allen, who's going to be great in that new system, also. So I love where the Cavaliers are headed. They don't have a star yet. They're still waiting for that superstar, and maybe they'll get one in a trade or maybe somebody will want to sign there in the next couple years. Going to be difficult, but they have a bunch of young pieces. I love Isaac Okoro, fifth overall pick uh, from last season out of Auburn. They have a really nice young group and i like where they're headed and jb Bickerstaff, again i didn't think he'd get the job permanently but he had but he got it and he has done a phenomenal job he is my coach of the year other guys i'd consider i'd actually think tom Thibodeau, of the knicks is worthy he's done a great job with his team also similar to, to Bickerstaff, a young team bad defense, bad defensive team last year they've gotten much better and then I think you'd have to consider Nate Bjorkren uh, from the Indiana Pacers. They're 11-8. and eight. He's played, or, uh, That team's played really, really well. Taylor Jenkins, the Grizzlies, uh, six straight wins. They're 8-6. I know they've had COVID problems. They haven't played a lot of games, but I consider Taylor Jenkins for the award. So there's a, a number of different candidates every single year that I think are always worthy, but to me, Bickerstaff just stands out a little bit. So I would pick him. Uh, so again, my award picks at the quarter mark were only about 20 games of the year, but these are my award picks to this point. MVP is Joel Embiid. Rookie of the year, Tyrese Halliburton of the Kings. Most improved, Jalen Brown. Defensive player of the year, AD. Sixth man of the year, Jordan Clarkson. And then finally, coach of the year, J.B. Bickerstaff of the Cleveland Cavaliers. Take a quick commercial break. We'll be right back to do Noah's winner of the week. And then we'll wrap up episode number 17. This episode of Schwartz on Sports is brought to you by Invader Coffee. Invader Coffee is an ultra-premium veteran-owned coffee company proudly delivering only the best coffee your hard-earned money can buy. They aim to serve only the highest quality organic air-roasted coffee beans sourced from free trade farms all over the world. They keep things simple, the best coffee at an affordable price in order to provide you with the value you deserve for your morning boost. 100% fair trade, 100% organic coffee beans, 100% air roasted, 100% money back guarantee. Visit invadercoffee.com and enter promo code BELLYUP at checkout to receive 15% off your order. Welcome back. Episode number 17. Here to wrap it up with Noah's number one performer of the week. And I mentioned them for a few seconds earlier in the episode when I talked about Jordan Clarkson, but my winner of the week is the Utah Jazz. The Utah Jazz have a better record than any team in the league so far early in this season. And it is all working for that team right now, clicking on all cylinders. And and really, they are playing at such a high level, and they look like one of the top contenders for the championship, and I don't think anybody expected that as we went into this season. So obviously they're led by Donovan Mitchell, and he is one of the best young players in the league, and then defensively they're anchored by Rudy Gobert, uh, one of the best centers in the league. And... I think for a while, many people figured that this was a team that just was a little bit short in terms of depth and having those extra players who could go and create their own shots and get baskets and they they weren't good enough on either end of the floor to truly compete. Well, so far, that hasn't been the case. Bojan Bogdanovich is playing extremely well. He's making shots, uh, doing what he normally does, but at a really, really high level. Jordan Clarkson, again, sixth man of the year. Derek Favors is back this year. He's playing pretty well. Um, Royce O'Neal and Ingalls, They're steady on the wing They play defense really well So it's really It's really been impressive To see what the Jazz are doing And Quinn Snyder has been One of the best coaches In the league for a while But this year he's really Elevated himself And so they're the number one seed They've won 11 straight Going for 12 today uh, Before I record this They're playing Denver later today We'll see if they can win Make it 12 straight But really happy for Utah It all ended in heartbreak For them last year Blowing a 3-1 lead losing in Game 7 at the buzzer. Mike Conley shot rolled in and out, and they lost in the first round of the bubble. But this year, it's been a totally different vibe, and everything is clicking. So the Utah Jazz are my winner of the week. We'll see if they can keep it up. Again, the West is tough. The Lakers and Clippers are there, and Denver's really good, and Dallas has the chance to be really good. So th- this is a deep conference, but if Utah can keep it up, they look like one of the top title contenders, and that was something I would not have thought about them at the start of the year. So anyway, that'll wrap it up for episode number 17. I will be back later this week to do a Super Bowl special. I cannot wait for next Sunday night between the Chiefs and the Buccaneers. We'll see how it all goes between Mahomes and Brady. But there'll be more more between now and then just to talk about the game and go through all the different matchups and whatnot. But this was episode 17. Enjoy everybody's weekend, and I'll see you soon.